Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heart of Sports. I'm Jason Springer here in studio with Jeff Cohen, back with you on 610 AM ESPN Radio, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. Jeff, there's nothing quiet about this summer. It's amazing. August. It's supposed to be the dog days of August. No stories, and it's every Friday. The news is nonstop. Mm -hmm. Today we had trades, suspensions, and more. We're going to get to all of it in a little bit, but we're really excited to be joined in studio for the first segment by the pride of Camden, Vidal Rivera. Uh, Mr. Rivera, it's kind of fun to have you here. Uh, thanks for coming in. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you coming. Let me come here. So your day job, you know, you're chasing your dreams as a boxer, but you're sitting in studio and you're in your officer uniform as a police officer in Camden. Don't you feel safe today? Uh, something. Yeah. I, I feel like I feel like you're not going to make any jokes about me right now. Nope. That's what uh-uh. I think. Yeah, nope. you're going to be very straightforward in this interview and make sure that you're very nice to me, right? That's going to happen. No, Jeff. I'll be nice to him. You're going to be nice you to him. You're not going to. Yeah, to me, you're going to go after. So I, I was I was really enjoying reading about you coming up, and I found a great quote from your trainer uh, who one time said he was 98 pounds and couldn't do a single push up. Explain to us how you got into the the crazy world of boxing. How did this happen? So my my family my family uh we grew up really close in our neighborhood. Like everybody's basically family, and that's how it usually is throughout of Camden. Like your best friend, you call him your cousin, you call him your brother, you call him your sister. So one of my best friends, his uncle was my uncle. So he took him down to the local boxing gym at our community center, and he was like, you know what, I'm gonna take Vidal with me. So let me take Vidal with me and. It happened to be in the summertime, took me down on Memorial Day weekend. They were closed for the gym. He said, oh, well, I'll bring you back next week. I said, all right, sure. Week went fast, came back, and here I am now. The rest is history. Yep. How how old were you when you went for the first time? 14. I was in my seventh grade year, well, seventh grade summer year. Uh, going into my eighth grade year. Yeah, well, you said the rest is history, but from what I understand, from reading about your your story, it it didn't go smoothly when you first started. Oh no, about. no, no! I was literally a punching bag. <laughs> I heard you. I heard you say you were one and four to start. Yeah, I started off at one and four. Uh, I didn't win my first fight until like my fourth fight. So, uh, what lessons did you learn? I mean, that that's perseverance, and that's something we talk a lot on on the the show about lessons learned from sports and, and for people that can learn from that. You know, you, you continue chasing your dream despite the rocky start. Mm-hmm. How'd you do that? Um, it was more it was more of a good push and I learned, you know, trust other people and it was a big thing with my coach because he fills that gap of not having a father. So he's taught me patience. He's taught me, you know, humbleness. He's taught me, you know, to uh the perseverance to just keep going no matter what it is because you're gonna be told no in the beginning of everything you start. But if you keep pushing at it, you're going to get a yes. You're going to get that door to open that you're knocking on, that you're looking for. And now after the start at 1-4, and four, you had over 100 amateur fights, right? Yep. So yep. you stopped being a punching bag and it's, started beating up other people? Yep, I started making my own punching bags. What clicked? Um, It was like a light switch that I found in a dark room. It just I was waving my hand around, and I said, hey, boom, box, don't mm-hmm. bang. You know, he's always telling me, you're not, you're not a banger. You're not a banger. You're, you're too... You're too tall to be on the inside. You know, that's the small guy's game. You're going to be taller than your fighters. I want you on the outside picking your opponents apart. And I just couldn't get it. And my aspect was I wanted to be this really tough guy, you know, punching everybody and moving in and out. And I just couldn't grasp what he was saying at first because I was never athletic. I never played any sports prior to this. This was really the first sport I joined and started loving. So it just was me waving my hand in the dark and boom, 
the light for boxing it was there just to stay on my toes, use my jab, and the rest it was just it would be easier. I'll put whatever I want together. Can you talk a little bit, uh, you know, you're obviously chasing your dream, but we said you got a day job. How's the work-life balance of being an officer and serving the community and then going to the gym at night, I assume, and, and boxing and, and honing your craft? Uh, very demanding. Um, I mean, I'm glad I'm, you know, 25 years young and I had the body to do it now. Um, but I guess what gets me out of bed every day to know that there's a lot of kids or at least young men going through what I went through, not having our fathers there. So that motivates me when I wake up to know that, you know, I may come across young me that's looking for their start in life and maybe a little pep talk from me or just seeing me because, you know, now that my story is getting out there, they might know who I am or heard of me. And, and when they say, hey, this is the kid that's, you know, trying to do things that you want to do when you get older, this is him right here. And, you know, that might spark that plug there. So when you guys get a great opportunity there in Camden with with some of the new community policing efforts that you're doing to really interact. So I imagine that that you become sort of a role model for some of those kids that, that they see their future dreams in you as you chase it. Yeah. And it, I try to get it to across that. Sports is every it's not everything. It can always just be that thing to open your door to you, maybe your career that is going to be your day job. You're nine to five. So I really am glad that they always do promote it in a sense, not because, hey, he's undefeated. Hey, no, hey, he's he's a kid just like you that grew up here, grew up in the heart and seen everything that you're seeing. And he's making something out of it. I watched a documentary when you turned pro from 2015, and it was pretty cool to see. It was an 11 minute documentary. Mm -hmm. See you coming up, preparing for your first fight. Uh, as I said to you before the show started, the, the liver shot you delivered to the guy <laughs> made, made my stomach hurt while watching it on, on the screen there. Tell us about the decision to turn pro from an amateur with those 100 fights and what that journey's been like since doing that. Well, it became it's basically like you look at it like the NBA draft. You know, you got your class. Like Kobe was the last to retire his class. So I think I was probably one of the last, one of the few within the kids that I was fighting in my group within the Philadelphia region to finally turn pro. So, you know, me and my coach were sitting back, always thinking, hey, we're going to do it this year. We way back, try to do a couple more national tournaments, you know, get more ranking, try to get, you know, some uh, some promotion behind us and, you know, a big backing. And uh, we finally got to it. You know, 2015 was like, you know what, let's finally do it. Uh, I started working for the police department and everything, and he was like, you know what, let's start your career and let's just take it from here and, you know, we're going to, you know, do what we have to do and whatever the schedule is. So when it was finally happened, it was it was a dream come true. You know, I I finally achieved something. You know, of course, graduating high school was one of them. But also with this was more personal with me because of what I endured in the beginning and everything, not being an athletic kid, not, you know, not being so tough. So Tell us a little more about that. How did you overcome that? Because... You know, I, I wasn't the, the biggest kid growing up. Same, same thing. I never had the skill to become a boxer. You're I'm, not the biggest I'm, kid uh, now. Appreciate that. <laughs> Remember, I'm sitting next to an officer right now. Um, how did you overcome some of those people who said no? And what do you hope that people will learn from your story of really overcoming all of that? Uh, you, your boss, your young boss, no matter what. You you give yourself that promotion of uh, confidence, of uh, you know, courage and everything. You you give yourself it when you turn it on, you turn it off, uh, and that's things I had to learn. You know, I've only been in maybe three street fights, and they were all in school, and it happened to be next door to the neighbor that took me to the fight uh, boxing. 
he was a neighbor too. So it was just basically I was fighting my own brother if that. And so you so, learned how to sort of control yourself and, and channel that. that. Uh, no, I actually had to create it. You had to create yeah, it. Okay. So were like, you reserved growing up? Smaller kid? Oh, yeah. I was I was like a walking rubber band or something. I was just so <laughs> loose. And like my coach says, he was scared that I was going to break my arm hitting the bag. So, but if, but if you, if you're if you're passive or you're laid back, where do you where do you generate the interest in doing this? Because this is a this is an aggressive sport. the art the art of the sport the uh-huh. sweet science you know hit and don't be hit and I think that I have the advantage because when you look at it, I've never been in a street fight, so I don't really have all this pent up anger to get out. Mm-hmm. So when I resort to that, where I have to go deep down inside when I'm probably in the tough fight you know, looking for that dog, it's going to be more of I'm falling back on just boxing. You know, a street fighter, if he falls back and he's, like, frustrating everything, he's going to swing for the fences like if he's in a street fight. Me, no. And my whole aspect that I've been taught from fighting is boxing. So I don't think I'll ever lose that when I have to deep uh, have, like, a real tough fight or anything of that nature. So boxing for you is 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 a thinking sport. Yeah. It's just, not a reacting or it's not rage. It's, it's actually you yep. trying to figure out what your next move is. Mm-hmm. I assume that's a benefit when you're fighting people who are so aggressive and using that rage that you can kind of play the mind game with them and and pick them apart a little mm-hmm. bit. And so, would you say you're more of a defensive fighter? Wait for them to to make the move, or or just you try to set them up with the way that you plan your fight? I set them up. I set the pace. I you know I control. I try to control everything about it. Uh, you know I don't ever like I said I don't ever go in there forward. You know it's more of a, a crawl. If anything, if you want to look at it that. But uh, it's yeah, it's everything. It's on me. If I set the pace for the fight. I go in there, and if it's going to be high pace, it's going to be high pace. But it's going to be with me boxing, hitting you, turning you, slipping the shots, weaving the shot, and then continuing moving. So you're still undefeated. You have a promoter now? No. So you're you're out there on your own yeah, trying to do it. Yeah, still on my own. We're still trying to. Uh, we're working with one manager. Nothing contract wise, just a handshake right now. But very good person. Um, but you know. Just the opportunity for you out there to hone your craft and yep. and raise your profile. So when's your next fight for our listeners? Uh, next week at the Claridge in Atlantic City, New Jersey. So people can go down and, and watch your style yep. and see how it goes? Yep. See what, who are you fighting? Uh, we are fighting a kid out of Delaware. I can't remember his name or record right now. So what uh, what are your plans? Do you plan to fight outside the Delaware Valley Philly area? You want to yes, when uh, we do uh, present myself to be a bigger attraction and everything, just more so building a fan base to follow, maybe a little further out here and there. So you know, when it comes to it, hopefully at the end of the year and beginning of the new year, you know, we start bigger and better things. How many fighting. times a year do you want to be fighting? As much as possible. So you just as, yeah. as soon as I clear you to get back as in, as soon as I clear, if I don't get cut or anything, and I'm not sure, hey, give me two weeks. I'll go fight again. I mean, I love it. So, you know, it's, it's, it gives me this big rush of energy, you know, those lights, the crowd cheering, you know, never had it. So now I have it. It's just it's a good feeling. Well, you, this week you're going to earn two weeks. You're going to be fighting in the Claridge, which is it's Atlantic City. Yeah. You know, so it's kind of a boxing mecca. Where's the best place that you have ever fought? Um, Probably actually literally Pensalkin. It's right the town right next to Camden. Uh, I had a big turnout there for my first two pro fights, and uh, I enjoyed it. It was a nice venue. Everyone knew it. Everyone knew how to get there. It was something convenient because I'm always thinking about the people from the city. You know, one day I'm hoping to do, or night, well, a couple shows in Camden where it could be at very affordable prices because I do have people that I know, people from school. Hey, you know, I wish I could make you fight, but you know, maybe traveling or the prices are too much. So I'm hoping one day we can 
do a nice big show and even have Jason Sosa from Camden there. Mm-hmm. A, lot, a lot of local Camden fighters, even our amateur fighters, do a pro-am show. And they get to see, you know, kids that are doing it, that are trying to get to the steps that we're at and make it affordable for a lot of my Camden residents. We love that you don't forget where you're from. No, that, I love my the, city. I love it so much. You can see the smile on your face, the pride <laughs> that you have representing them and the idea of coming back and fighting for them in your hometown. Uh, hopefully somebody that's listening is interested in that for you. If you do, we'd love you to come back and talk about it when the time comes. You, uh, you've even, you even changed your nickname at one point, didn't you? Yeah, uh, my favorite fighter, he still is, um, for back in the time was, uh, Tommy Hearns. You know, long, man. yeah, long, lean, and linky. Yeah, they probably don't like a police officer having that nickname. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, um, I remember on my pro debut, my coach, what are you gonna call yourself, boy? What are you gonna call yourself? And I'm just like, I don't know. I said, we always called me the Hitman. So he went on with this long, long name, you know, the Camden City Cobra, the Hitman, all that. And, of course, uh, Nino Del Bono, the famous ring announcer, he um said he started saying it, and he hit prior to Camden. And it made me freeze for a moment before the fight started. And I said, that was nice. And then after that, I was listening to it again back on my uh, little documentary. And I said, you know what? I'm going to drop all the other stuff because it's already been used. And I said, I love my city so much. I think that this is the name for me. And I, you know, I try to shorten it up because I try to get people to call me Pac and everything, you know, POC, Pride of Camden. So, I mean, I think that's the name and I'm definitely going to stick with it. It's great though because it represents who you are. Mm-hmm. So, you know, everybody knows in your nickname who you are, where you're from, what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, we, I'm obviously a huge boxing fan. Jeff watches a lot of boxing. Uh, we we talked some. We had uh, Bill Holmes from Boxing Insider on talk a little bit about Mayweather and uh, McGregor. You got any thoughts on, on a boxer uh, as <laughs> of what you're gonna see there? That uh, I think we're gonna be in for a show. Right. I, I really think that Mayweather's gonna gonna put a, a pretty good show on, and I think McGregor's is not gonna be easy by far because. McGregor's been champion, and he knows what it is to take it to be champion. And now that he, he does have losses on the belt, so he knows what it feels to lose, and he knows what it is to give someone else a loss. Um, I think it's definitely going to be a tough, tough fight. But you're you're a guy who who studies boxing. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how does a guy who has done that, like Mayweather, his entire career, not just immediately knock out somebody like McGregor, who's going to have none of the science of boxing? He's going to be at such a dis. I would think he's going to be at such a disadvantage. I think um, Mayweather has to be still cautious. I think McGregor still, you know, he has a punch. If you look at it in the UFC, he's knocked everyone out standing up. So I, it's going to be hard for McGregor to land a punch, obviously because of what Floyd does, and we can see that he can make you miss, you know, five miles away instead of the usual one mile away. Mm-hmm. Um, but. For Mayweather to knock him out fast, I don't think that's going to happen. I think uh, McGregor, like you, I've said, he's shown the heart of being a champion. And uh, in my opinion, I think UFC probably way more more uh, physical sport with you know kicks and elbows and grappling. May- Mayweather's trying to downplay it this week, saying that he's older. He and lost a step. Lost yeah. a step, and so he's out there trying to downplay it. I, I think the you talked about it. McGregor knows what it's like to be knocked down mm-hmm. and knocked out. What's it like for you? You know, you're undefeated as a pro, but you started your career with losses. Were you ever knocked out in those losses, or no. was it more? T- so having those losses yet being undefeated, does that 
give you an advantage over people who have never lost because you know what it it tastes like to feel that pain of oh of course if you make that promise i I know any fighter they before they sign their first contract, you make that promise to yourself that you'll never go back to another loss, you'll do everything you have to do and leave everything in that ring before you walk out. You know, if a one on your, if it's your first time, a one. McGregor's obviously excited about the payday. You know, he talks oh, about the business course. side of the sport, and it's great for him. I did see a story today that, depending on what happens, he might walk away afterwards. It might be his last fight with some of the recent stories about concussions and CTE. As a boxer, do you ever think about that? We have Dr. Amalu uh, on in our next segment uh, where we'll talk with him. Is that something that ever comes across your mind that you you worry about? Yes, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, Pritchard Cologne. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm now seeing it, you know, and he's just a year younger than me. You know, it does give me chills, you know, thinking about it and seeing it because you know here's this young kid, you know, he's probably never been really in trouble or anything, and you know he's doing it basically the same thing, you know, you're doing it for your family to help your family out, be a be a good role model, and now he's here, you know, debilitated to a bed. It can't do nothing. You know, it, it does worry me at times, and it is a scary factor, but, you know, it's the love of the sport, you know, gets you past it, but it does loom back there here and there because, you know, could this be the night, you know, and it, was, you know, and it wasn't intentional really from his opponent. I take nothing from him. You know, he never knew that that would happen, but, you know, it's things that do worry you. I think any fighter will worry about it because your health does come first. We really appreciate you coming in. It, it's exciting to talk with you. When, when we read the story about you in the newspaper, we, we wanted to to have a larger conversation because um, your story is inspiring to the people in the community. And the fact that you haven't forgotten where you've come from, you serve there every day. Any message you want to send out to the people of Camden or anybody in the area about what you do, why you do it, how they can be like you? I'll do it because... Um... You know, I just want to see, I want to see people even, kids better than me. You know, like I said, I would love to see a kid from Camden become a doctor and it be bolstered all over the city. You know, we do a walk of fame and things of those natures because I know there's kids that can do it. There's kids greater than me. I think I'm just an average Joe. You know, I'm a blue collar guy. Go to work, fight, go to work and fight. You know, there's kids that probably want to be way, way more greater things than me. And of course, doctors, lawyers, and you know, it's just, they need that spark, and I'm hoping that, you know, if they ever hear this or ever see me and I talk to them, that it does get ignited right there and they become something great. Well, we appreciate you joining us to spread the message a little bit about what you're doing. We wish you the best of luck and all health in your next fight, and we hope you'll come back in as, as you go forward. Of course. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for coming. You're a real yeah. inspiration to the kids in Canada. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're going to take a break now. When we come back, we'll talk about the crazy week that was from suspensions to trades to more. Stay with us. Are you looking for a lifeline? Verizon New Jersey Shares Communication Lifeline is a statewide nonprofit that provides assistance to individuals and families living in New Jersey, those who are in need of temporary help in paying their communication and energy bills. Want to know how to apply? All you need to do is call Verizon New Jersey Shares at 1-888-337-3339 or visit on the web at www.newjerseyshares.org. It's quick and easy to sign up, but remember, you must be a Verizon Residential Landline customer to apply for eligible programs. That's Verizon New Jersey Shares, keeping the lines of communication open for you and your family. Let me tell you, buying or selling a home is a life-changing decision. Whether you're looking for your first home or searching for your forever home, Ann Coons is the realtor you need. In fact, she helped my wife and I settle into our forever home. 
With over 30 years helping satisfied clients buy and sell homes in the Delaware Valley, Ann Coons will give you the professional and reliable service you deserve. When it's time to buy or sell a home in South Jersey or Philadelphia, contact Ann Coons, the only name you need to know in real estate. You can call Ann Coons today at 856-795-4709. Again, that's 856-795-4709. Or learn more on the web at www.annkoonsrealestate.com. And we're back here on the Heart of Sports. Jeff, the guests we're getting are just fantastic. I know. I, I mean, that was a great interview. That that was inspiring. To, you know, he hasn't forgotten where he's come from. I was really hoping he would knock you out, though. <laughs> he brought his own weapon. He doesn't need to knock me out if he wants. No, but it would, that would have been more entertaining. What, what is the violence against me, huh? Again, it's every week. I don't know. It's a little pent-up aggression or there something like go. that. There you go. All right. Let, let's no, talk. We'll, get, we'll, 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 we'll give you a hug after. There we go. Yeah. Uh, you make me feel better. My mommy tells me I'm special, so don't worry. It's all good. He he was great, though. and, and I, People should try to get out and see his fights and just watch his rise. It, it, I definitely i yeah. am looking forward to following mm-hmm. and watching. So let's talk a little bit. Eagles' first game last night. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. Yeah. Well, they, they they played. Carson Wentz played. People are very excited about him. For the one series? For one series. Yeah. They look good. I, I just don't... It, it's so You don't hard. like preseason football. No, I don't like You don't like football. it at all. It is such a waste of time. More news was made today than there was last night. I didn't hear anything. What are you talking about? You didn't hear about the trade today. So the Eagles no longer have Jordan Matthews on their roster. Yeah, well, he he didn't seem very happy the last couple of weeks, did he? No, it seemed like they reached a point where they valued each other differently. Mm-hmm. Matthews had a value for himself. Well, he didn't want to be in the slot. It doesn't seem like he wanted to be in the slot. Right. He didn't necessarily capitalize last year on the opportunity given to him. He played well, but at this point, he's a third receiver in this system. So they banished him to Buffalo. <laughs> now, we <laughs> may have somebody listening on the Internet in Buffalo, so be nice to the people in Buffalo. They know it's cold there. It is, but yeah. it's summertime now. Uh-huh. So it, the trade right the now. trade was Jordan Matthews and a third-round pick to right. Buffalo for cornerback Ronald Darby, who played his college ball at Florida State, mm-hmm. and this is his third season in the NFL. Had a very good first season, not quite as good second season, still under contract for two more years. Mm-hmm. Eagles definitely paid a little bit of a premium with the trade. They trade their third round pick along with Matthews. It means, they, but they desperately needed somebody back there. And that's the thing. Desperately. They're immediately better, even if he's not that good at cornerback. Mm-hmm. It just goes to show you what they have back there. But if you look at it now, they've got a very young potential defensive backfield to grow. You've got Sidney Jones at 21, Jalen Mills at 23, Rasul Douglas and Ronald Darby at 23. Uh-huh. You've got, why, why you got to take me down with if he plays? Why do you have to do that? Because all of these moves are predicated on on them taking a guy who's injured. Who, Philadelphia who sports is predicated us. on if he plays. Okay, uh, let's be honest about the city that we're in right now for sports. What did I, what did I text you last? Story night? of my life. We're watching we're watching the game, and, and and the first thing I notice is who's who's been the defensive backfield of the Packers? Kevin Kevin King. Yes. Who's a guy they could have had? Yes. They could healthy, and they were raving well, about. They him actually the could have had Ronald Darby, because True. Ronald Darby was taken fiftieth in the draft that they took Eric Rowe at forty-seven. Why wow, that worked out? So, well, <laughs> there's a chance we get a pick for Rowe this year, depending on yeah. how much he plays in New England. So, you Map know, this whole trade out though, because without getting into all the players, okay, 
Somehow the Eagles did well, I think. I think they, they, they got, they should get a positive. If I would have told you that the Eagles would be able to get somebody who was a starting quarterback for another team, mm-hmm. would you have taken it? Because yes. that's what they did. And, and, and they were, I looked at rankings for the last couple of years in defensive backfields and Buffalo's was in the top seven or eight each of the last couple of years and he was part of that. So that's good. Buffalo still made out well because they got Jordan Matthews, they got rid of Sammy Watkins, and then they got some, they got uh, a second and back. a third round pick. The Rams, I can't figure out what they're doing. They're the Rams. Uh, they, they don't need to tank to get the the first pick for no, a quarterback. No, the, the Jets are getting. They that. already did that, and they picked the wrong quarterback. The Jets are getting that pick. Yeah. By the way, did you hear the? I think the over under for the Jets this year is 140 points. <laughs> that's bad. on offense. That's, I feel, that's a disaster. I feel that's bad. less than ten so, points a game. Does that mean that Nelson Aguilar is the Eagles' slot receiver? Yeah, who would have thought that? I mean, obviously everybody's very excited after Mac Hollins' spectacular run and effort mm-hmm. in a preseason game against somebody who's going to be bagging groceries. Don't get me wrong, I'm excited for Mac Hollins, but right. his impact this season isn't going to be a wide receiver. It's going to be on special teams. Maybe. He he may make well, an impact at wide receiver, well, but well, but, your guy didn't exactly impress on special teams yesterday. Why you got a rail on the short guy? Uh, it has nothing to do with his height. Donnell Pumphrey did not have a. He great, muffed a punt. He did badly. He did, he, and and that's that's not a good sign because that's where I would have thought he would be the star. On are you going to be critical of him all season long? Is no, if he does well, I'll be I'll, you'll I'll praise give him, him kudos. You'll give but, him kudos, but so you won't hold it against him. I haven't seen it yet. All right, so. My Christmas Day got a little more exciting, though. I was already planning for the Eagles on Christmas Day night. Now, what were you planning <laughs> to watch? Oh, okay. Hopefully, it means something. And, and you have a date with your couch. <laughs> yeah, date with myself. My son and I will sit there. We'll watch a little of the game. He'll go to bed, and I'll watch the rest and fall asleep. This is a family program. It is a family program. <laughs> we'll be fine. It's all good. So now I get to watch the Sixers on Christmas Day. How about the fact have that... Have they the, said the time yet? I haven't seen it yet. My guess okay. is it'd be at noon at Madison Square Garden, the right. first game of the day. They'll be playing the Knicks. How about that, that the Sixers, the team that, you know, everybody went crazy over the process for the last few years, couldn't win a game, now is going to be featured in the Christmas Day game. Not only that, they're also going to be featured in a game in, in London. London. So... Cheerio. Who, who would have thought... 24 months ago, or even 12 months ago, that that the Sixers would be one of the primetime games. Everybody hoped they would. Yeah. Again, it's the oh, if they on. stay healthy. You saw this coming? No. Nobody saw this coming. This this was. It's funny because five years ago yesterday is when it all sort of started when they brought Andrew Bynum in, and they inadvertently started the tank, or whether they intentionally is he, did. Is he back bowling? I don't know. No? I don't know. He hasn't made the PBA tour yet? You could go out and check. <laughs> you you want to see what he's doing? No. <laughs> Talk to me about the Phillies this week. They won a lot, and then they, they got did. blown out. <laughs> and they lost Benny again, and we don't know what it is. All we know is that his middle finger, there's something wrong with it. It went numb. It was is, numb. Th- that's a bad sign, by the way. Yes. That's usually the elbow. Don't tell me so that. So I'm hoping it's not. Dr. Cohen, would... I thought you're a lawyer. What is going on here? <laughs> what is this diagnosis that we have of I an elbow at, injury? I stayed at Holiday Inn last night. <laughs> Holiday Inn Express, there you go. <laughs> We're going to have to get them as an advertiser. I, I, I mean, everything. You, they immediately, I mean, uh, watching the broadcast, John Kruk immediately said something's wrong with him, just the way he was throwing, and he went from what looked like an eight-pitch inning to all of a sudden I turn around and my son says, hey, he's up to 20 pitches again. <laughs> and it, it just, it fell apart, but... Your 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 boy is back here. 
Stop. Uh, Reese Hoskins Stop came up yesterday. on my excitement. He caught everything that was uh, hit to him, which is a good sign. He did. Yeah, which is better than when they did the rough experiment. That's but, right. But, you you don't like what's going on right now. No, Let's be serious no. for a second about uh, this because I am excited that Hoskins is up in the major leagues. I've wanted to see him. We've disagreed about whether he should stay down in the minors, get a little more seasoning. I didn't think there was no, much no, no, for him to do no. there. Well, yeah, but the, you're misunderstanding. It's not that I think that he needs more seasoning. You just love it, Tommy Joseph. You feel bad for him. No, I think they've put themselves in a predicament, and I, I, I don't uh, – people don't understand that when, when you're a hitter, you have to feel comfortable. And when you move out of your natural position defensively, it affects your hitting too. It's just a mental thing. So putting a guy who has played first base his entire professional career into left field after trying him out there for two days, which is essentially what they did in the minors, it seems like a recipe for something gone wrong. Somebody told me it's a very Phillies thing to do. (laughs) There's a thing in Philadelphia that's gone on for decades is that left field is is like Dunn's Corner. That's where they put the people to pick the flowers, right? It's like like they're not going to hit the ball over there. (laughs) I mean, it's been since uh, Luzinski. It's... uh, Look, I'm excited that he's in the majors now. Mm -hmm. Uh, I... I don't know what's going to happen. Pete with, there. I don't know what's going to happen with Joseph though. He's been struggling some. The manager seems rather impatient with him at this point. Yeah, but kinda, is it artificial? I mean, that's the other thing. Is, is it, it or is he now looking for problems because he has another problem he needs to deal with? Because if, if Althair comes back in the next couple of weeks, you're going back to your Williams Odubel. Who's playing well again, by the way. He is the most He'll get benched in two player weeks, two in the world. Watch. He can hit two triples and then yeah. not run out of play and drive you crazy. It's riding a roller coaster rooting for him and watching this, that game. Did you see the second triple? He slides into the one third base. <laughs> he does this weird, weird th- dance on third base. The ball goes into the dugout, and Sammy's telling him go home for the Little League World t- uh, home run. <laughs> <laughs> and he and he celebrates the mistake. It, you you can't make he it up an when enigma, you watch it. And we're gonna we're gonna as a city, I think, just have to accept that this guy's got a lot of talent. Have fun with it and and just say there's going to be times where you're going to get frustrated with him. But you know, sometimes the they say you need to take the here. good with the bad. That's I think we need it. to take the bad with the good with him <laughs> because there's going to be things that he does that we love and there's going to be things that he does that are just going to make me want to pull the little hair that yeah. I still have out. Uh-huh. It's just not going to go very well. But the, but that outfield is coming to – if they stay healthy, you've seen enough of Nick if, Williams to – well, if you see – you've seen enough of Nick Williams to say this guy could stay. Uh, he's legit. Right? Altair is going to be out till September. Right. And, but, he, and we, he's now shown it. Mm-hmm. And, and Oduble is – I mean, he's a great defensive outfielder he's, he's too, which like I o, didn't see he's that. He's more like O-Triple right now. Yeah. He's uh-huh. doing all right. He's got, I think, seven of them. Let's talk Ezekiel Elliott before we get to our Dr. Amalu interview. What did the NFL do today? They made the Giants fans, the Eagles fans, and the Washington fans very happy. They suspended Ezekiel Elliott for six games. And they were pretty stern in the statement they put out with six pages of documentation in a letter threatening banishment if he didn't, if he did it again. I mean, is this a... Did you not get the impression from that that letter and the things that, that, that we've so far heard is that that he wasn't they got they were upset that he wasn't forthright with them. I think that's part of it. I think the other part is they're tired of doing too little at the start and being criticized for it a la Ray Rice. Yeah, but but you can't punish somebody else for the for your own sins. 
That uh, I agree it with like what they, they did. They believed all of the allegations against him. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they took them as that oh, they clearly and, did. and and based their decision because on otherwise that. they couldn't have given him six games. Yeah, despite the fact that he wasn't charged with anything or and this is a really serious issue. I mean, we talk Kaepernick and the hypocrisy of the NFL. You know, this is an issue now with with domestic abuse and domestic violence. If he just got caught speeding, he's not getting six games. No, but the NFL at this point, with where they are, but he but he's had four alleged incidents already that we know of. Alleged. We have the, the most serious of incidents, which this is what the suspension led to. We have the incident where he pulled down a woman's top without permission. We have the speeding ticket, which is the the least of the problems. And then there was another incident in a bar where he apparently allegedly broke somebody's nose. So, and people have been worried about him down in Dallas, and Dallas is not a place. I think they said they there have been 14 suspensions of cowboy players over the last 10 years. Or How so. about them cowboys? Yeah, <laughs> they have three players suspended now. They do, and Ezekiel Elliott will obviously appeal, but it looks like he will not be with Dallas to start the season. And Jerry Jones looks very credible, doesn't he? He well, said there was a, this morning. He said gonna, there's nothing to it. We're going to have more about Jerry Jones next because mm-hmm. when we come back from the break, you can catch part one of our interview with the man who discovered CTE and is subject of the movie Concussion, Dr. Bennett Omalu. Stick with us. It's a great interview. Are you looking for a lifeline? Verizon New Jersey Shares Communication Lifeline is a statewide nonprofit that provides assistance to individuals and families living in New Jersey, those who are in need of temporary help in paying their communication and energy bills. Want to know how to apply? All you need to do is call Verizon New Jersey Shares at 1-888-337-3339 or visit on the web at www.newjerseyshares.org. It's quick and easy to sign up, but remember, you must be a Verizon residential landline customer to apply for eligible programs. That's Verizon New Jersey Shares, keeping the lines of communication open for you and your family. Let me tell you, buying or selling a home is a life-changing decision. Whether you're looking for your first home or searching for your forever home, Ann Coons is the realtor you need. In fact, she helped my wife and I settle into our forever home. With over 30 years helping satisfied clients buy and sell homes in the Delaware Valley, Ann Coons will give you the professional and reliable service you deserve. When it's time to buy or sell a home in South Jersey or Philadelphia, contact Ann Coons, the only name you need to know in real estate. You can call Ann Coons today at 856-795-4709. Again, that's 856-795-4709. Or learn more on the web at www.annkoonsrealestate.com. Good afternoon. Uh, today we have with us Dr. Bennett Omalu. Dr. Omalu, for people that do not know, is a neuropathologist, forensic cl- and clinical pathologist, among other expertise. He's currently the chief medical examiner of the San Joaquin County in California. He's formerly a forensic pathologist in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and he is the doctor who discovered and coined the term CTE and was subject of the movie Concussion. He was also co-founder of Talmark, the Better Brain Diagnostics, and uh, I'm glad to say I have just finished the book that you were oh, the wow, author really? of. Yep. <laughs> He's not even a fast reader, doctor. Yes, he read the whole thing in one night. Doctor, I, I will. I, I literally stayed up all night the other night. Your, your uh, publicist was nice enough to forward us a copy of the book, uh, and the book for everybody that's listening, the book is called Truth Doesn't Have a Side, My Alarming Discovery About the Danger of Contact Sports 
and I recommend to everybody highly to read this book, not just because, by the way, of the story of concussion and your discovery, but, Doctor, the story of your life and your family, even before you came to America, is incredibly inspiring, and everybody should try to read this book for that reason, too. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And uh, truth doesn't have a side, honestly. I very, it took me almost one year to share my journey of faith and uh, my journey of science to let people know that come what may, no matter where you may be in life, what you're doing, what you're struggling with, it's going to be okay. Be patient with yourself, be patient with God, and be patient with society. It will be okay. The wow. truth will always prevail. And and it was certainly fascinating to learn more about you as we prepped for the interview. Uh, you know, obviously most people know you because of Will Smith's portrayal of you in the movie Concussion. But for those who haven't seen the movie, can you tell us about your work and interest in brain injuries and, and how that began in terms of the discovery of CTE for you? Well, that began by serendipity. Like I said in the book, uh, I never wanted to be a physician. <laughs> you, you just got lucky be, that way. <laughs> I wanted to be a pilot. Okay. I became a physician because of um, confirmations to the you know, traditions of society. My parents wanted me to study medicine. Um, I had problems. Uh, I struggled with depression and low self-esteem, but I kept on keeping on. I, at some point, I dropped out of medical school, but I finished. So when I finished, I decided to study forensic pathologists because it was far removed from traditional clinical medicine as much as possible. So that was what brought me into forensic pathology. And while I was completing forensic pathology fellowship, I discovered the brain in terms of discovering the, I personally discovered the intrigue of the brain, that the brain was uh, a very complex organ. And I did not know so much about the brain, so I decided to study the brain and do a fellowship in neuropathology. So I finished my fellowship in neuropathology in uh, June of 2002. So I began work as a forensic pathologist in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and uh, then I was single. Uh, I was young and inexperienced professionally. I still struggled with depression and low self-esteem, so I did not have a life. And the only social life I had was Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights. I could go to a nearby nightclub, drink Hennigan, stand by the loudspeakers and bang my head to the rhythm of the music. <laughs> you might have found Jeff out home. there. He was out there at law school at the time in Pittsburgh. You were both looking for uh, for a wife, right, Jeff? That's right. Uh, do doctor, we have something in common. Uh, we both met our wives in Pittsburgh. There you oh, go. really? Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So there was this uh, cold Friday evening in Pittsburgh in September of 2002. So I did what I always did, went to a club, came back late as usual, um, woke up late Saturday morning. I had to go to work because I, I did most of the weekends and public holidays in the office. I was the most junior pathologist and the only single pathologist. So I had to go to work that Saturday. I turned on the television, fixed myself a cup of coffee, um, but that morning on television in most of the channels, all the uncommon and women were talking about this great football player who had just died. His name was Mike Webster. But they talked about 
but in not in uh, glorious terms, but in very derogatory, dismissive manners. And they spoke about him in the context of other retired football players that they did not do so well on the field of uh, life as they did on the field of football, that they did not handle the obscurity of retirement very well, that they struggled with um, giving up the fame of playing football, they did not manage their money well, blah, 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 blah. As a forensic pathologist, somebody who studies dead people and speaks on behalf of dead people, I was offended by what I was hearing. So I paid close attention to find out why they were saying what they were saying about him. And I noticed he played football. I did not grow up in America. I came to America when I was 26 years old. However, I saw football once in a while on satellite TV growing up in Africa. And I thought it was a game where people dressed up like extraterrestrials with big fat heads, <laughs> but padded shoulders and tiny legs running around the field and intentionally slamming themselves into one another. It was called football, but I did not see anybody kicking the ball. Rather, they threw the ball to one another. But I wondered, even as a child, why they had to wear a helmet playing a game that if it was a game, why would you wear a helmet? So that day, I wondered, okay, if this guy behave the way these people are saying he behaved. Couldn't he be suffering from dementia pugilistica that boxers suffer from? Well, I uh, thought about it, but well, he wasn't a boxer. And dementia pugilistica in those days had only been described in boxers. And I thought quickly, medical school, I never came across the terminology dementia footballistica football players. So, well, I had to go to work. Life is unfair. Poor guy. Rest in peace. I sped off to work. Lo and behold, I'm getting to work. Guess who was on my autopsy table? Mike Webster. And so was that your first, first exposure to the brain of an NFL player where you sort of started to make that connection? In yes, your mind? yes. I had no reason to do my Webster's autopsy. We knew why he died. He had a massive heart attack. Okay. I opened up his skull. I was expecting his brain to look mangled and shriveled. But guess what? His brain appeared normal. I was shocked. There was a mismatch. But like I always do with all my patients, I talk to them. I introduce myself to them. When I introduced myself to Mike Webster, I said to him, Mike, there is nothing wrong with you as a person. I think you're suffering from a disease. Okay caused by the repeated blows because I believe if he played this game for 15, 17 years, he, he must have suffered thousands. I calculated at least 200,000 blows to his head that he had some type of brain damage. So I told him I would use all my education and knowledge to get to the truth because there is only one truth. Truth does not have a side. And, and so in your search for the truth, not only was it Mike, but there were lots of players that you came across along the way. I, I, here in Philadelphia, Andre Waters um, was an eagle that was beloved, and we saw in your book that he stopped counting after his 15th concussion. I saw you say that his brain had degenerated in a New York Times story to have characteristics of an 85-year-old with early-stage Alzheimer's. Can and I believe he was less than 50 years old. Because after I saw the Mike Webster case there and then, having reviewed the literature as far back as 400 B.C. to Hippocrates. Remember, Hippocrates was the one who identified and described concussions. He called them commotious cerebri. Centuries of scientific work. If a human being plays a game like football, 
and his head is exposed to thousands of blows. There is a 100% risk exposure to permanent brain damage. So I knew in 2002 that every professional football player would have CTE or some degree of brain damage with or without CTE because CTE is not the only type of brain damage you suffer from following brain trauma. So I started searching for odd for the brains of retired football players. I actually traveled around the country speaking to the family. Um, Andrew Waters was the third case I got. Why? What do you mean? Why? Yeah, how did you come across Andre if Waters? Died, you know, these things, unfortunately, you have to wait for them to die. I couldn't go and kill football players <laughs> to get their brains. <laughs> so, so when he passed away, did his family contact you because they had questions? Yes, his family had contacted that some other individual who brought it to my attention. Or rather, some other individual reached out to the family. Gotcha. I brought it to your attention because... The second case, Terry Long, was about uh, one year after the Mike Webster case was published, okay? So I got his case. Then after that, I got the fourth one. After that, I got the fifth one. In fact, at some point, I was the only physician in the world describing these diseases. And that was when other doctors started insinuating that I was practicing African food medicine. <laughs> <laughs> And, Dr. Weaver, we obviously know that's not the case. And before before we get to that, and also I know Jason wants to ask a little bit more about your interactions with the families of, of the people who suffered from CTE. Uh, one of the things I found interesting in not only the movie but also your book is uh, I know people that have, that have worked in the, the Pittsburgh coroner's office. Last time I checked, they weren't getting paid $2 million a year. And and yes. when Mike Webster was diagnosed with, or, or you determined that he died from a cardiac arrest, at that point you decided on your own, is my understanding, to pay for the autopsy and, and the tests on Mike Webster's brain. Is that well, accurate? Not the autopsy. What happened was after the autopsy, I had a cause of death. He died from a massive heart attack. But I saved his brain. Um, I had, by the guidelines and protocols of the office, I should not have saved his brain. But I saved his brain, so I went to my boss, the world-acclaimed forensic pathologist, Dr. Cyril Weck. Dr. Cyril Weck, Weck, in my opinion, is one of the most intelligent people on earth, an extremely brilliant man. So given his brilliance, he recognized the intellectual value of what I was doing because he asked me, what are you looking for, like in the movie? I said, I did not know, just that something is amiss here. So he said, well, that he wouldn't stop me from examining the brain. I could examine it to fulfill my intellectual curiosity, but the office wasn't going to pay for it because we did not have money. So I said, okay, that I would pay for it. But I remember, luckily, I was single. I had no children. I was making relatively good money as a doctor, and I had no life. I was struggling with depression. Mike Webster's brain gave me a life. <laughs> so you actually, you dedicated yourself not only your time that you were working, but financially, as Jeff said, to to make sure that this could be paid for to to be able to pursue your research. Yes, and even on my travels, I traveled across the country interviewing the family members. I I paid with my own money. Um, even after I published the Mike Webster case, gave it the name CTE, the NFL came after me, and fellow doctors, which is very amazing. 
including doctors who are working on CTE today. They discredited me, they marginalized me, ostracized me, ridiculed me. You know, I was reading your book, and there was a there was one quote in here that I kind of would like to read. Jeff was very bothered when he saw this in your book, and he actually texted a screenshot of the text to me so that I would believe that what he is reading is accurate. Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it was in this section on the NFL equals big big tobacco. That's the, the title of the section that you had. And, and you said, and I'm quoting here, in their seventh paper published in January 2005, the NFL put forth questionable data and concluded that when a professional football player suffers a concussion, which in their opinion is the mildest form of brain injury, the concussed player should be returned to play the same day he suffered his concussion. They further concluded that when a concussed football player is returned to the play the same day or in the same game in which he suffered a concussion, his clinical outcomes are better and he has less risk of permanent brain damage than a player who is taken out of the game completely following a concussion. When I read that, I literally, I, t- I turned to my family and said, how can that be? And then I texted Jason. I, Doctor, when you when you saw that quote, as somebody who ha- had been working on this and trying to help the players, what was your reaction to that? You know, in fact, it's even worse. Uh, that same paper which I referenced, I gave the the uh, bibliography section. They said that the same standards should be applied to college and high school football. I think that's actually what got Jeff so much. Is Jeff has coached at the youth levels and. and- and seeing the implications of that yeah. really hit home for him. Anybody who doesn't believe it should go and get the paper and read. I put, I, I, I put the reference. <laughs> so what happened was, when I remember I was traveling around the country, spending my own money, meeting these players behind the scene. Okay, in fact. Uh, Fred McNeil's wife would tell you that when she called me to tell me about her husband, that I was not the one telling her the symptoms her husband was suffering from. The same symptoms she was calling me to tell me about. And she asked me, how do you know? I said, because I've seen too many of it. These players were suffering in obscurity and in silence. And society said to them to shut up, that you're not tough enough, that you, but to play football you need to be tough, that culture of masochismo. We treated these human beings as if they were not human beings, but animals, gladiators. We used them, they entertained us, then they retired, we dumped them. That was what I saw. And that, what happened then was there was this reaction in me, because I'm a Christian. I discovered Christianity through my science of studying death. And my faith as a Christian, the scripture tells us that we all as human beings are one body, one spirit, one hope, one joy, bound together by peace. Okay? That we all are the images of one another. If I look at you, I see myself in you. And whatever we do, even to the least of us, we do for all of us. So I said, how could this be happening in America, the country that I loved so much, like Will Smith said in the movie Concussion, that as a child growing up, I believed heaven was here and heaven was immediately beneath 
and America was immediately beneath heaven, a place that was closest to what God wants us to be as his sons and daughters. And I said, no way, this could not be happening to America. But my faith couldn't let me to keep quiet. So when you I just couldn't do that to myself. That would have been torture for me. When you talk about how we treat each other, playing it forward, do you think the NFL is doing enough now for its players as they try to change? What are your feelings on, on what's currently going on? Okay, what I'll tell you next, please. I don't want anybody to faint uh, uh, uh. <laughs> if you're standing, sit down. <laughs> okay. I have never made this about the NFL. I never imagined that the NFL would do anything to protect players. I'll tell you why. The NFL is a corporation. I'm a free market person. I have an MBA from Tepper School of Business, Carnegie Mellon University, one of the best business schools in the world. This is the free capital economy, the free market economy. The NFL is a corporation. What do corporations do? The objective of a corporation is to make money, profits. A corporation provides a product or a service. The product the NFL provides is football. The service they provide is entertainment. The NFL is not in the business of healthcare. The NFL is not in the business of medical research. So I don't expect the NFL to provide healthcare or health monitoring to their players. No, that is not what they do. And I want the NFL to be a very successful corporation, to be honest with you. And that was why I wrote my book. Let's not make this about the NFL. Let's make this about ourselves, about the consumers, about parents and about children. And that is why I believe, I spent almost one year to write this book. I believe each and every parent must pick this book to ask and ask, read, read the book and ask himself or herself this question. Do I love football more than I love my child? And, and that is what my story would help you answer to make it easier for you. That doctor, that's a, that's an incredibly important question. That's one of the reasons we wanted to have you on the show, and we're going to get to that shortly. Um, just finishing up with professional sports, though, it's interesting that that you find it um, the free market to be something that controls, and and that despite all of this, that you're not anti-professional sports or contact sports. But when we see something, you may not follow this, but the NFL had its its Hall of Fame induction last week. And Jerry Jones, who is the owner of the Cowboys, is somebody that you cite in your book because after a hearing where an NFL official acknowledged that there was a link between concussions or CTE and football, um, Jerry Jones was cited in the Washington Post as saying that that was absurd. Um, that there was no data that in any way created that knowledge. Well, what we know now, not only from your research, but within the last couple of weeks, a study has come out uh, showing the brains of over over 100 NF, NFL players um, and showing the, the vast number of them, if not all of them, having some form of CTE. How do you feel about Jerry Jones, somebody who owns a team, and is responsible for players making such comments. Okay. Thank you for asking there. 
my advice to the NFL and to the NFL owners is to give them a case study in business school. That of Tesla, Elon Musk. In business, it is in your self-interest. It is in your sustainability interest and even your profitability interest to align yourself to the truth. There is only one truth. Like I said in my book, truth doesn't have a side. There's no alternative truth. There are no alternative facts. Truth does not have a perspective or a perspective. And come what may, it may take a long time to come. The truth will always prevail. Elon Musk, when he wanted to start a battery-powered car, he was told he couldn't do it. But some people even laughed at him. But Elon Musk aligned himself to the truth that there was global warming. He did not create his own alternative truth. I drove a Mercedes-Benz. Two weeks ago, I ordered a Tesla. Good luck. You'll be waiting a because, while. <laughs> because personally, I am embracing the truth. I cannot continue to contribute to global warming. And guess what I was told at Tesla? They are the greatest number of their customers who are coming to buy Tesla are Mercedes-Benz owners, followed by BMW and Volvo. What happened? Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Volvo, and other car brands refused to align themselves on the side of the truth. And guess what? Society left them behind. So for the NFL, it is in their interest to align themselves to the side of the truth, or on the side of the truth. Otherwise, as, a, with ta as time goes on, they would become like Kodak and Blockbuster. It's as simple as that. So you can continue to deny the truth. It's okay. But I guarantee you, in another generation or less, football will become insignificant because society will leave football behind. The consumer is not a fool. The NFL is extremely successful, and I'm very happy for them and excited for them because they've done a very good job in marketing and branding themselves to make Americans believe that football is America's identity. The Super Bowl is not a, a bigger holiday as uh, Independence Day. But the problem is success begets arrogance. Success gives you a false sense or may give you a false sense of who you may be, or an exaggerated sense of importance. Jeff, that was some interview. It gave us a lot to think about going forward. That was a great time. I'm looking forward to next week, where it's even more thought-provoking than this week. That's right. We'll have part two of our interview with Dr. Amalu talking youth sports and the movie Concussion itself. Join us next week at 5 p.m. Everybody have a great week. Bye-bye.